You're listening to Lost in Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. believe that one of the best ways we come together is through music and through this series I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now, some already exploring new ways of doing this. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're having an absolutely lovely day. The guy just cycled past me, looked exactly like Bruce Dern, but a Berlin Bruce Dern who's got like a kind of more of a flamboyant electric blue suit on. And I think he was eating crisps at the same time. I'm along the canal in Kreuzberg and you can hear a lovely little bit of Django-esque guitar near me. You can hear the birds. Just now, you just missed it, a dog came along that really, really, really had an issue with with the guitar player, was really barking over the top. Maybe the dog had an issue with the the Django-esque guitar player. Maybe the dog just wanted to sing some some sort of 1920s style swing jazz vocals on top of that um between songs when the person playing this stops you can hear a little bit of in the distance i don't know if this will happen whilst i'm speaking to you now you can hear a little bit of jazz further down the road which is more of a stand-up ragtime kind of affair which is on the bridge um but it's quite nice to walk past just now I hope you're having a lovely one. I really do. There's a kind of cautious sense of optimism in the air right now. Um, Things in Berlin are set to slowly, cautiously open up towards the end of the week. Not just that, but I've got my jab on Thursday. I'm excited. I'm going for a bit of the old AZ. Jab me up. Today on the show, Lou Hater. Yes, Lou Hater who originally came to attention with New Young Pony Club, the Mercury-nominated New Young Pony Club, back in the mid to late noughties. During that, and perhaps part of that incredible golden era of music, I mean, I know I'm sounding a bit biased, but for me, the last time that kind of guitars sort of really did something or found a way found a kind of combination of doing something interesting and doing it by teaming up with synths and kind of making this kind of post-punk electro 
child or series of children and these children just made beautiful interesting edgy music for a few years as i'm sure you can remember um around that time it was a great time i loved it there's a lot of lot of really amazing music uh like all of the stuff on dfa all of that a new young pony club were there they were doing their thing ice cream I danced to that tune so many times. Uh, since then, she's done loads of stuff. She's done a lot of DJing. Um, she was in Tomorrow's World with Half of Air, making slinky, seductive, Gallic, kind of psychedelic pop. And now she's got this new album, Private Sunshine which is such a good name for it because it does feel like you're listening to your own private little disco, your private little disco on a yacht in 1981, um, wearing a suit by early Halston. I don't really know much about fashion. I've just been watching the Halston thing with you and McGregor on Netflix. So that was just the first thing that came to my head. But you know, you get the idea. It's kind of space yacht disco infused loveliness. Um, she even audaciously covers Steely Dan on it. And that's something I really, really, really wanted to ask her. I kind of hijacked the interview a little bit to kind of, because I wanted someone who's obviously such a Steely Dan fan to kind of guide me in a little bit because I've always been a bit on the fence with them. Yeah, I love quite a lot of their music, but I've also felt a little bit alienated from, you know, a bit like, say, if you don't really understand fine wine and you're having a conversation with people that really, really love fine wine, like... Can't, I, I anyway would feel a little bit ostracized and I feel like that a bit about the Dan like just being a bit on the outside it feels like there's such a club and she's a massive fan so she helped guide me in so thank you Lou for that it was a fun chat we talked about lots of different things I hope you enjoy <laughs> so how are you doing yeah, I'm good, thank you. Just um, gearing up for the album coming out in a few weeks or in a month. Yeah, that's amazing. So Private Sunshine, um, it's got such a kind of, sort of, it's such a good name for it as well, because the kind of things it reminds me of in a way are like the kind of bright kind of post-disco kind of sounds uh, of like Roxy Music, Grace Jones, and all of these things like that. And the sort of private vibe of, of, of like London, really, and where I'd actually go and hear good music in London and stuff. Yeah, um, I didn't think about that, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about how the album came about? Um, I, I think I'd just been making singles for a long time, and I released a track with Defected, and they were like, where's the rest of it? Um, and so I went back to the drawing board because I realised I needed to keep the momentum up. Um, and so I made a, an entire album. Mm. Um, and here we are. Was it a very natural process or was it something that you were kind of like, I want to incorporate all of these influences or, or have this kind of particular kind of sound? To it? No, I, actually no, because I made it over... Um, quite a long period of time with different people and so it's not 
particularly cohesive really or or thought out as a whole even it's just I've just got in the studio when I could got put it together mm. um, but I think that um, it it does tie together just because it's me if that makes sense yeah um, I, I was speaking to Chili Gonzalez the other week and he was kind of saying by by nature of you doing something, it's always going to sound like you. You know, it doesn't matter sort exactly. of how disparate. Exactly. Yeah, it's just I didn't really have the luxury of sort of having a studio for any sort of block of time or um, having someone to work with even. So it kind of, yeah, as I say, it just, took, it just sort of happened over a period of time. Mm. And, and um, like, what about the influences in there that sort of, I mean, I know like influences transform and they kind of come out in your own way, but were, were there any kind of influences that when you started you thought, I'd love to make an album that makes me feel particularly like this or like that? Um, I think that came later, maybe. Um, the sort of later tracks I made, like Cherry on Top and the one coming out tomorrow, which is Telephone. Um, I'd started sampling and I was really trying to get into a sort of like yacht rock sort of West Coast sound, but making it into a pop song. Mm. Um, that was one of the times I can think of where I had a bit more of a concept that I was aiming towards. The rest of it, I've just, um, it's kind of what comes into my head. Mm. Um, I think in hindsight, I can see that what I did was I took my, sort of underground influences so you know acid house or disco or um yacht rock or whatever they are and I sort of made backing tracks out of those and then I sang pop songs over the top hmm. that kind of feels to me um a good way to describe it but it wasn't um there wasn't really a sort of much um don't know I, it just kind of came together because I listen to so many different types of music I could really make anything on any day you know mm. and it's usually just what comes into my head on that day. Do you think the influence of DJing as well kind of can you can you hear like the kind of way you approach DJing in the album as well like in terms of no, kind of... a lot of people ask me that mm. and I'd like to say yes, but no, I don't think so. I think because I'm making music that, you know, when I DJ, it's more clubby. Mm. Um, the one thing I probably have taken from DJing is um, mixing, kind of my understanding of mixing is from from DJing. I know what, what sounds good mm. on a sound system and in a club and, and certain things. I don't even play if they don't sound, if the mix isn't right or whatever. So it's made me pay a lot more attention to, to mixing and mastering. Mm. It's given me a bigger insight into that, I think. Yeah, because there's a whole kind of volume to music as well, isn't there? And how it works in spaces and, and stuff and yeah. how it makes you feel like that. It's a dark art. It's a mystery to me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I try as hard as I can to like push this side of the record that I kind of know nothing about really, but I, I've got um, Dave Bascom to mix it, who mixed Tears for Fears and um, he, he mixed like Sowing the Seeds of Love, Peter Gabriel, so, so I kind of, you know, to me they're the best sounding records mm. ever. Um, 
so it was a real honour to have him on the record. And I think, you know, we tried a few more modern mixes and just because of um, the sound of this particular record is in a sort of 80s pop sphere, he really worked well with it because he didn't give it too much of a modern sheen, you know. Mm. Yeah, it does have that real kind of like analogue kind of brightness to it, I, I feel, you know. And I, yeah. I, I didn't realise Dave Baskin did uh, so. Because um, I, I, I think there was a couple of years ago, I was, I was watching, I think it was like one of those rock docs about um, how they made Sledgehammer and how it was going to originally just be a song without all of the brass and stuff. And then they put the brass yeah. on and it kind of totally changed the sound of it. Oh, I want to see that documentary. I think... Actually, I could be wrong, but I think he mixed everything apart from Sledgehammer. Oh, okay, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of other bangers on that album. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure somehow he left a little bit of his essence in the, <laughs> those days that they were doing that. Yeah. Um, I think also, like, I think it's really brave and you've done a really amazing job of, of doing taking on Steely Dan, I think. A lot of people would feel a bit intimidated about covering Steely Dan. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I, I wouldn't have chosen to cover Steely Dan. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to cover Steely Dan. Mm. I actually would probably go the opposite way, if anything, because I love them so much. They're my favourite bands and I know what they mean to other people. Mm. Um, so it's kind of sacrilege, to be honest. But I just heard Time Out of Mind and I was like, I really want to make this. I really want to see what happens when I try and sing this myself. Mm. And it came together really quickly. Like, I mean, the first day I took it to Martin's house, my the guy I worked with, Martin Dubka, and um, we just put it together. And it, within a few hours, we were like, yeah, this is a vibe. Um, so we went for it and it, you know, it does sound really good. So people like it. A lot of Steely Dan fans. Mm. So far, Touchwood, not one person has said anything bad about it. And a lot of Steely Dan fans have said they really like it. So that's good because um, I wouldn't want to offend anyone. But I wouldn't yeah. have got to like do it again or any of them. That would be treading a fine line, wouldn't it? And, uh, it, but... would. it really would. Yeah, and and that's really amazing that you've got the kind of approval so far from Steely Dan fans on it because there is such, and also being a Steely Dan fan yourself, I'm kind of a little bit on the periphery with Steely Dan. Um, Like, I'm kind of like, I love what I've heard and I'm a bit more of a, in terms of like their music, uh, no, a bit more like Can't Buy a Thrill kind of era. I think that's the album that I got stuck with, you know. Uh, Great, that's their first album. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got like Michael McDonald on it and stuff. Yeah, he's on. I mean, yeah, he's on there all the way through mm-hmm. um, as a backing singer. Um, yeah, Can't Buy Thrills, probably like one of my favourites of theirs. So, you you know, you've got a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and like, uh, uh, and Time Out of My Mind is on Gaucho, which is like a later album, which is one I've not really discovered, but it was like quite famous for having like loads and loads of in- musicians on and, and, you know, session musicians and, being a big studio production, I mean, 
Um, could you, you know, if you were going to sort of sell it to me, <laughs> say like, come on, you've got to leave, can't buy a frill behind, come on, go a bit, <laughs> deep, go a bit deeper into Steely Dan, how, how would you describe it to me or sell it to me? Yeah, I mean, Goucher's the other end, um, so I would sort of end up there, if that makes sense. I, I can get into Gaucho for years and now I'm absolutely obsessed with it. It's very, very smooth, like... You know, it's so well produced, but it's smooth. And I just couldn't get into it for some weird reason. And then I went to see them live and I just became obsessed with Gaucho. And it's really similar to um, Donald Fagan's solo album, The Nightfly, which you should also get for sure. But yeah, I mean, Asia's their sort of classic album. It's the ja- more of a jazz. If you're into jazz, it's made with Tom Scott. Um, who's made lots of stuff on Impulse and uh, it's got Black Cow on it. Mm. Um, made me go for Asia. Um, I love the Royal Scam personally. Yeah. It, to me, it sounds like a sort of movie soundtrack. That's a really cohesive one. It's all got this kind of mood to it. Um, but I think they're kind of all good, actually. Pretzel Logic. You can't go wrong. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to start going. I was going to sort of like leave my comfort zone of this Can't Buy a Frill album that yeah. I've had for 10 years. Documentary yeah, uh, is really, really good. It's one of the best. You can watch it all on YouTube and it's yeah. funny. Oh, that's amazing. They're really funny. Definitely yeah. <laughs> and um, where, uh, where did this, because I think also with Steely Dan and, and the fans and, and you being a fan as well. I think, and the way you talked about it then, it kind of reminds me there's this level of love for Steely Dan and about the particular albums that reminds me of when people talk about wine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like, um, I was with a friend on Saturday and he's really into natural wine. And then we were going to these places where but they were describing the natural wine going, this one is like, maybe don't start with this one, maybe have this one later <laughs> in, in the evening. Um, what, what for, for you, you know, what, it, what is it about the appeal of, of the Dan? <laughs> um, I got into them, so I first heard Peg on the radio, I heard Patrick Forge play it, I was probably about 18, and I was like, hang on a minute, how come I've never heard this band before? And I knew the sample from De La Soul. Mm. And I think I just got, because I was buying loads of records then, you know, they were all quite cheap, the albums, and I just bought all their albums. And uh, I I just loved them. That was it. That was a sort of love, my love affair began with them. But they've just got so much character, um, the lyrics, the stories. They I'm not even much of a lyrics person, weirdly. I shouldn't mm. say that if someone writes songs, but... Um, I, do, I often don't pay attention to lyrics unless it's like Joni Mitchell mm. or Steely Dan or like the Smiths or something. And um, they tell loads of stories. There's humour in there. There's stuff that's really relatable. Um, they're clever. They're really clever. Mm. Um, I've heard them described as like intellectual nerdy jazz pop or something <laughs> <laughs> they're, um, they're really funny and just like there's always something it's like watching a great movie you know you, you can listen to something play it to death and still hear things you've never noticed before I think about them then there's obviously the musicianship which is incredible mm. and then the the vibe of them is just like happy 
you know mm. if I'm having a bad day or whatever I always put Steely Dan on and it's like really comforting and warm very very warm sounding you feel like you're suddenly in LA in the sun you mm. know I, I love that description of it yeah definitely and and I, I kind of relate to that as well because weirdly it's funny is that I'm, I'm I think I'm not really a lyric person either but it's weird at the same time like say most of Bob Dylan's stuff I love the sound the actual texture mm. of his voice but I can never remember the words afterwards but then, like you say, there's certain singers like like, like early Smith, like Smiths or something like that, where where for some reason they they become actually the the words become as much the sound of the music as the music itself. Yeah, they're really clever, aren't they? The Smith lyrics. Mm. Yeah, again, like loads of storytelling. I think. Yeah. yeah you in. Like little little short stories and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because most song lyrics are like, you know, about love or whatever, you know, the same themes. And they'll be talking about, all, you know, all kinds of, you know, literature, art, whatever. Mm. Um, See, so Dan always talking about drink, like booze <laughs> and uh, drugs. And, but there'll be like whole entire stories going on in these songs. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's why it's so memorable. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. So you sort of really dive into the kind of like the familiarity with the characters and and these like reoccurring yeah. little like oh he's going on about his 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 booze again and yeah and he's like oh let's go to Mister Charles and have some like Szechuan dumplings and then we sign a deal and do loads of drugs you know all that's going on <laughs> in, like, three, three lines of the song and then mm. gone somewhere else you know. <laughs> Whereas most songs are still like, I, lo- I want to go to the club and whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and how, how, about, how about for you? How did, how did music first come into your life? Um, I think probably when I was like four or five, I just um, kind of, it's been all around me in my household. So my I've got three siblings and my parents and just everyone would be playing their own different music around the house. Mm. And then I just kind of uh, joined in, I suppose. <laughs> um, got into really into pop music, but um, there was a lot of classical music going on. And um, my brother played me um, Eric Sarti and stuff. And I started mm. to learn that on the piano, which was a real sort of eye opener for me that I could take a piece of music that I loved and then play it for myself. Mm. Um, so then I started learning piano classical piano lessons I had till I was about 15 or so and then just from literally four or five I just so I kind of soaked everything in like a sponge everything around mm. me which was just loads and loads of different um things you know so it's quite a natural process of just being having absorbing stuff and finding your way of interpreting it out. And and yeah. um, th- was this in London? Uh, yeah, Bromley, uh, the suburb of London, southeast. And did you start, so like, um, so like the first thing I, I heard of you doing, I don't know if you did stuff before, was with like New Young Pony Club. Um, and and was, was that like your first sort of experience of playing in a band? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was a bit of a late bloomer. Oh, I still am, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think being a late bloomer is good. 
Me too. Me mm. too. Um, yeah, I was about 24, 25. Um, I worked at the record label, which put out their first single, which is Turk, part of New Phonics. And um, Sav, who I worked for, Sav Ramsey, said to me, do you know anyone that could play um, drums for this, this band? So I found mm. them, uh, Sarah Jones, my friend. Um, and then I called them up and they were like, do you know anyone that can play keyboards? And I was like, yeah, I can play keyboards. So I just left work straight at that second and went to meet them and got the job. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, it was more like a sort of serendipitous thing. I didn't plan it at all. Yeah. But were you, were, you a, were you a kid that kind of had dreams of joining a band or was it more just like a kind of, a, oh, you're in a band now? Yeah. I, I mean, I always wanted to be, you know, from a small child, I was like, oh, I'd love to be a pop star, but I couldn't really sing. So I didn't think that I ever would get to make music. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I literally just fell into it, but I wasn't like trying to to do that at all no I was DJing then so I guess I was more focused on DJing and working at record labels and then I just sort of mm. fell into this band and suddenly we're like touring the world and I was like what <laughs> yeah did it take was it did it take quite a bit of adjustments to get used to the sort of the yeah. kind of you know the getting in a van getting out of a van kind of lifestyle yeah, absolutely and just being on stage I was terrified yeah, because I'd never, I'd never done it before. And, you know, the band became really successful really quickly. And, yeah, we'd be playing to, like, 10,000 people and I'd be absolutely terrified. But I really loved it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, like, at that time as well, um, that kind of era of that sort of mid to late noughties, um, to me, it kind of, it's already sort of feels like it's like a kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just the hindsight of looking back and the amount of years and stuff does seem quite golden, but it seems like such a golden era to me, you know, like you had like the kind of new rave stuff, you had the whole DFA stuff as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. New Young Pony Club kind of, if I was DJing, I could kind of mix quite easily like LCD sound system and Daft Punk to New Young Pony Club and then go into something way more rock like Queens of the Stone Age or something or, or go yeah. more more kind of disco and Larry Heard or something like that. And it, it felt yeah. like a really optimistic time, really. Yeah, it was a great time. Yeah, because you had like Optimo and mm. Trash and my friends won our disco. I loved it, Plastic People. And as you say, it was, yeah, just a sort of melting pot, wasn't it, of like a sort of post-punk and disco-y kind of electro vibe but it was the club scene was amazing I mean mm. we had so much fun we really did yeah we, we was this uh sort of like a kind of East London thing for you or? yeah mm. East London I mean Trash was West Trash was at the end mm. um and then yeah pretty much East yeah pretty much East I think it was yeah I, I remember a lot going to Sonar in Barcelona 
I always associate that with that era because I went every year. Yeah, right. Yeah, because I I missed out on trash because I wasn't living in London for those few years where it kind of really kicked off. But I kind of I think I kind of moved to East London about the tail end of that kind of era, sort of like yeah. two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. But still, like Shoreditch and, and like Dalston being still mm. very kind of places where you know you could go and find a speakeasy bar and um and the mm. dj just playing really 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 good music and just being really excited by the sort of creative energy of, of it around there. did you was that like it for you or yeah time? absolutely because I, I was djing all the time as well so um if i wasn't on tour i was djing and i was just like yeah fully immersed in it Mm. It, 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 it was such a great scene at the time I made so many friends that are still my best friends to this day so mm. yeah very happy memories yeah definitely and I think like with your DJing um and the album as well one of the things it does remind me of in a way you know I mean we all hear things in our own way don't we so but it's just that sort of there's a kind of really, I live in Berlin now and I love the music here, but it's def definitely something else. You know, it's definitely more streamlined and, you know, more minimal. And But what I really feel is unique about the London sort of sound, because I was DJing quite a similar thing to you in London, is that mm -hmm. it, it is such a melting pot, an eclectic melting pot where you know there's nothing you know like like you've sort of mentioned earlier on it can play peter gabriel and then play it next to some sort of mutant disco and i i can't really think of anywhere else where that energy kind of goes on was was were those kind of things big for you yeah i think i really thrive off the energy here because it is so broad you know you can just find everything and i do get immersed in in all of it if you know what I mean I'm not really a person that sticks to one genre mm. um, so yeah I, I was I've been involved in so many different scenes um, throughout the years so I really thrive off of that in London yeah absolutely mm. It's definitely one of the things that when I go back, well, I've been able to for over a year now, obviously, but um, I really, really look forward to. And and you're quite a big vinyl person. Do you, is it always vinyl that you play? Yeah, I just, I mean, I bought vinyl since uh, when I started DJing, you only had vinyl. Mm. I'm showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, oh, you use vinyl. I'm like, well, that's what I always, you know, you you had to buy vinyl mm. um, and it was heavy as well, like carrying record bags around. So now I much prefer taking USBs, if I'm honest mm. with you. I have some gigs that are vinyl only and I do enjoy them, but they're exhausting, like <laughs> carrying two mm. big bags of records with you. Um, and I like the versatility of just like having a USB with like thousands of tunes on it. Mm. Um, but, you know, vinyl does have a, very special place in my heart and it's also nice to not DJ vinyl because you get to keep your records in good condition as soon as you start DJing with them you sort of need to buy another copy yeah <laughs> um, I, so I, I tend to prefer just having them at home to be honest yeah I, I've definitely lost a lot of vinyl that way as, as well particularly playing house parties like sort of back when I was DJing vinyl where they would not, I'd even get to a point in the night where I wouldn't always put them back in the right sleeve. And oh, it, it was just yeah. horrible. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, for me, it's safer to just use a USB. Um, but yeah, vinyls, I, I have to say, I got the test pressing of my album on vinyl mm. and it really felt like it galvanized the whole thing. Um, it was amazing how different it sounded. So yeah, there is, you know, it's a very special format. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I love the way you say it sort of galvanized the whole thing because I think um, we have access to online stuff all of the time and to have like an actual artifact that you can feel that also is in the shape of stuff that you've always played on, you know, the vinyl shape. It, it sort of represents something, it sort of represents more of like, I guess, maybe more of a, a um, an achievement maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's nice to have something tangible. Mm. Um, but it even just sounded different. It was um, it was just really nice to hear the record. Do you feel like you've left the record behind yet? Do you feel like it's something you can hear, but without going, oh, why did I put this bit here? Or is it still a work in progress to you? No, I'm, I'm actually really happy with it. Um, I don't, because I'm quite a perfectionist, I've already done my like listen to it a thousand times and make sure I've got every I'm happy with every millisecond of it mm. um but uh so yeah I'm I listen to it and I'm like yeah sounds good it's the mix thing for me that um I sometimes struggle with because when you hear stuff on different sound systems or different stereos it sounds completely different mm. so that I have to always adjust to um but in terms of the record itself, I'm really, really happy with it. But I've started sort of making new music. So I've kind of, in answer to your question, have I moved away from mm. it? I've definitely moved my headspace into like album two mode. Mm. But I, so I'm really excited to get this one out. And does it feel like it kind of having it out kind of gives you more of like a kind of a, feeling that you can go on to album two, that like you're not kind of having to hold on to like a, a child that hasn't gone to university. <laughs> yeah, and just having, because um, uh, obviously I know the album, but other people don't. They've only heard, you know, four tunes from it or something. So mm. I'm looking forward to people just understanding more about who I am kind of thing and having a bit more of the bigger picture kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, which does develop over a period of time, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and you also kind of like um, uh, the Evening Standard uh, described you as the style world's favourite DJ. I, I feel that there's always a strong connection between music and fashion. Um, mm. What What is that connection for you? For you? Um, yeah, I think they just go hand in hand, don't mm. they? I mean, any sort of iconic star has has their look alongside mm. and vice versa any sort of fashion brand has a sound to them usually in their shows or their adverts or whatever so I think they just it's it's been really nice to um because I've been I've gone to fashion parties since I was like too young to be at them mm. and it's really nice to be involved and because I understand it I understand the branding and the aesthetic and I understand the music so it's been nice to sort of be able to tie the two together in my work mm. it was quite natural to me that you know if you show me a brand I could kind of tell you what music I think would suit this brand sort of thing 
And that's a really interesting ability to have, really, isn't it? Because it's quite abstract when you think about it, to kind of go, to just be able to know what fits with what, really, because it comes from, yeah. I don't know, where, where does that come from? It kind of feels like it's like a sense or something. Yeah, it's a sense. And I think um, in terms of people as well, like when you're DJing at the, I, I don't, well, I do, I DJ at clubs, but if I'm do, DJing at events, you also have to be a bit of a social scientist in a way. You're like, who's in the room? What age group are they? You know, what's my demographic? What are they going to like? And I'm very adaptable. I'm not one of those DJs that just brings in a folder of, and mm. I'm playing this tonight. I'll really look around and gauge the atmosphere, the people, and try and cater for what I think they're going to like sort of thing so I'm quite a sensitive person maybe it's that I'll always like feel my way into situations mm. musically yeah I mean because I, I I don't DJ now but I DJed when I lived in London I do a lot of events as well and to me that make you know that reflects on my experiences as well like um you know you kind of sort of noticing when people like there's a couple of people that their heads are moving more and you kind of almost like they become a bit of a musical score and you're kind of or you're kind of picking up on people's vibrations as they move around the room yeah. and yeah and you, and you don't know who's going to be there yeah and even like warming stuff keep yourself warm as well if it's mm. tense or a lot of at these high profile events people get really stressed like film premieres or whatever and you just have to warm everything up Mm. people feeling comfortable or happy or whatever you know it's fun and it doesn't get boring because you're always on your toes mm. you've always got a it's always a challenge to get it right I think for the for you know you've got the client you've got the people in the room mm. you've got to get the party going so it's always quite um stimulating for me as a job I think a lot of the time people don't necessarily understand the, the basic power that the DJ is is not give it, you know, is, is tuning into, you know, what, what would happen if, if the DJ was replaced and an iPod was on. It would be a com yeah. completely sort of a different atmosphere. Like you were saying, all the DJs that like do something amazing, but maybe just have a set that they kind of play from start to finish. It's like, it's a really sort of in tune process of, of kind of noticing who's in the room and, and how to kind of not always bring the energy up, but to kind of keep it at a certain level as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, because you, you know, you've only got a few components. You've got your people, you've got your venue, and you've got your, you know, your boot, your drink, food and drink, and then you've got music. So it's one of the like very important things to creating the atmosphere. And and what are you kind of excited about for? I mean, you know, you're still saying you've kind of got the second album. You're sort of starting this album's out at the beginning of May. Um, what else are you kind of excited for this year? You know, obviously we've had like a kind of a crazy year, <laughs> to say the least. And yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to everything. I'm looking forward to mm. just getting out of my house and uh, going to meet my mates and hugging people and dancing and, you know, listening to tunes in a club again and I think we're just going to have a renewed sort of like sense of gratitude for every 
thing that we took for granted before the pandemic. Definitely just appreciating these little things that sort of not being able to do for you is going to seem kind of quite magical, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine Berlin in lockdown. I was saying that to my mate today, mm. really, just because it's such a free place. Yeah. I can't well, we... imagine you all like stuck in your houses and, like, <laughs> and all that. <laughs> So that was Lou Hayter joining me, Paul Hanford, on Lost and Sound. We actually had that conversation a couple of weeks ago now. Um, but today, the day I'm speaking to you doing this is May the 17th, 2021. It's sunny. It's almost summer. It's not quite. Summer is cautiously, cautiously thumbing up whether it's going to settle or, or fuck off somewhere for a few more weeks. I hope, I hope the sun decides to get an Airbnb on a cloud right above Kreuzberg slash Neukölln slash Berlin slash wherever you are in the world. I hope the sun just goes everywhere and we have an amazing summer. Um, thanks, Lou. Really enjoyed that chat. The album... Private Sunshine is out on May the 28th, which I think is my sister's birthday. I really should know that. (laughs) Um, I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I'd like to thank ESO for the amazing title music. I'd like to thank Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. Um, I'd like to thank Bear Radio as well. Um, for co-hosting this podcast and if you'd like to check out other English language podcasts based in Berlin check out their website berlinradio.org if you like what I do if you like this podcast please hit subscribe and leave a comment really 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 massively does help really helps me make more and more of this stuff for you Um, and also I have a little bit of extra news this week Um, I've been working on a podcast as Lost and Sound for Playtronica and that is actually out probably by the time you listen to this unless you listen to this the day it comes out it'll be out it's called Seeing Sound it is all about the convergence of what we see and what we hear I've gone out and spoken to some amazing people who talk about their relationship between music and and the visual world and like what we see and what we hear. The first episode features Jim O'Rourke and the film director, Peter Strickland. I really hope you're having a lovely day and, and, and I'll see you soon.